0: Receiving incoming transmission. Receiving incoming transmission. Receiving incoming transmission. Receiving incoming transmission. This is the President of the United Federation of Planets, Anne E. Rection. Do not approach planet Earth through transmissions of an orbiting probe from an intelligence unknown to us are causing critical damage to our planet. It has almost totally ionized our atmosphere. All power sources are failing and the probe is vaporizing our oceans. We cannot survive unless a way can be found to respond to this probe. The transmissions from this probe must be translated to save the planet Earth. Further communications may not be possible from us. Save your energy, save yourselves, Save the planet. Godspeed to you. You are our only hope.
1: Dumbass on you. You found yourself listening to Boldly Going Nowhere. Death by DVD does Star Trek 4. The search for uh, the ride home. The back to the future one that Christopher Lloyd isn't in because he was in Star Trek 3. The
2: voyage home. question, though, is uh, how is this home? Because it's just the past Earth. They still have access to Earth. So it's not really a voyage home at all. It's just a voyage to another time. It could have been at least
1: pretense the voyage back to the old home. It doesn't or matter. Or unless they're
2: talking about the first ten minutes of the movie where they have to get back to Earth to solve this problem in the uh, Bird of Prey ship, the Klingon Bird of Prey ship. That's the voyage home, and then that's it. The rest of the movie is about whales.
1: Star Trek Four: the voyage into semantics. That's I, Alexander Nash, and I am Hank, the world's greatest, our never-ending quest to trek the stars. It's continuing... With I brought this up last week, and I'll begin the show with it this week.
2: The weakest in the Star Trek series. You are correct. Random question though. Before we get started on this, what do you prefer—the original series theme or the Jerry Goldsmith movie series/slash next-gen theme? The da 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 da, or do you prefer the '60s? That thing.
1: I think I'm going to have to go with the 60s theme because that gets me much more into like that adventurous nature of, all right, we're going to get into science and science fiction and there's going to be all these different elements. What we're presented to with this and, and the, the third movie score, I, I think I mentioned on the last episode that it's a sweeping score, but I didn't really get too personal into it. It's the exact same fucking score from Aliens and it's really out of place. It's just this like... <laughs> action movie score and then this one is this 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 film would have been much more sufficient for part three as to where part three probably would have worked more for five or six uh semantics we're gonna talk about a lot of reasoning and why things don't work (laughs) with
2: this movie well like the jerry goldsmith theme is it's fine i don't have a problem with it It, it's kind of reminds me of like superman type stuff like you know that bombastic Big '70s uh, film score, but there's something to be said about the uh, the original theme because it is so kind of '60s, and according to me, that's timelessness is how kind of odd and spacey the uh, the original theme is. I just I think that's that one's really interesting, and this one's just kind of a little bit more epic, but also not as um, it's not as kind of inventive as say the original theme was. Speaking of themes. I, think I, hear one, faintly in the
1: distance. Mamma mia! Woo! Only a few minutes into the show, but that music can only mean it's time for... William Shatner or
0: DeForest Kelly. The 1966 horror film, Incubus, directed by Leslie Stevens, which is filmed entirely in the constructed Universal Traveler's language, Esperanto, is about an injured soldier named Mark who makes his way to a mysterious seaside community called Gnome Tomb. Like many others, he has traveled to the area so that he can bathe in the healing springs located there. But evil also lurks in the idyllic countryside. Mark meets a satanic witch, Kia, and is hounded by a demonic incubus who haunts people in their dreams. Mark and Kia fall in love, but she may not be able to break her bond with the dark side. Who plays the injured soldier, Mark? Is it DeForest Kelly? Oh! William Shatner. That's Esperanto for, holy smokes, it's William Shatner! Are you surprised? Well, you shouldn't be, because Star Trek aside, DeForest Kelly didn't do many movies that we can use for this game, and we already did Night of the Lepus. Whoopsie doopsies! Well, anyhow. Thanks for playing another Granda Dica Energio round of William Shatner or divorced Kelly. Until next time, live long and prosper. And now, back to Hank.
1: The whole ploy of this movie, going back in time, bringing that up right off the bat. Not only do Alexander Nash and myself have a problem with it, but fucking Shatner did too. Because time travel sucks to tell stories with. It can it can ruin everything. Because if you can go back in time and fix a problem, then why don't you do that every single time?
2: Then there's a there's no point to the show or the series or the story. It also presents numerous plot holes, and not just this film, but you know a lot of films of how time travel works. And then how that ebbs and flows into the future. And those can be interesting questions to have, but this film is not really interested in asking those questions. You're just supposed to accept what I find to be a very dubious way of time traveling, which is just whip really fast around the sun, and all of a sudden we're in the past somehow. Okay, science, I guess. But it's just, they didn't seem very interested in exploring that as much as it was the problem I have with this film overall. I was telling Hank about this right before we started, but it is an entertaining film. I do enjoy the film for entertainment purposes, but as far as a Star Trek film, it's less interested in kind of philosophic concepts and more interested in just a conver, uh, conversation conservation theme of save the whales for the future because it could possibly save Earth from a big black floating dildo. And that, that's pretty much the, the whole plot and it doesn't really dig deep into uh, something like we'll be getting into a Star Trek five, which is a, a more philosophic concept. And same thing with like uh, part one, uh, the motion picture, where it's it's about different themes and ideas that could be presented in a science fiction or a future aesthetic as opposed to just kind of space battle stuff. But uh, the biggest issue with part four is it's just a fish-out-of-water story, which isn't it can be interesting, but it's just I expect a little bit more from Star Trek than just fish-out-of-water comedy scenes. But, that, I mean, that was kind of in keeping with where they, I think, were trying to go with this film, A, on a cheaper budget so you couldn't have as many special effects, but B, of just trying to make Star Trek a little bit more, more lighthearted. And I heard a rumor... Don't know how real it is, but that originally they wanted Eddie Murphy to play the uh, the whale doctor in this film. And it was going to be more of a straight up kind of comedy as opposed to like, you know, like more science fiction themes, more of just like, ain't Star Trek funny.
0: This is becoming very irritating.
2: And probably making like Red Search a little bit more on the galaxy quest end of things. And eh, don't do that to my Star Trek. Uh, And I'm glad they kind of made it a little bit more serious. But this is the jokiest out of, I'd say, all the films.
1: If you're going to put Eddie Murphy in Star Trek, I I would like him to be a captain of a ship somewhere in space in the 23rd century and dead ass serious about it. And I, I would I would enjoy something like that. But Star Trek Four, Leonard Nimoy returns as the director, and I think he was efficient in the last film, and he's efficient in this film. One thing that will give him a lot of credit for, and I brought this up on the last episode, is he brings each character on screen for a little bit of time where you get to have a personal touch with them, and formerly before that, like, Sulu, Chekhov, Uhura, we really don't have any time with them. We have them established from the show, and we know who they are, but now they they have personality, and it's really fine, and it's really nice seeing the actors. But Nimoy has a habit, I feel, of just really cramming so much emotion and he loves this. He brings it up whenever you hear him speak and, and listen to reviews and read reviews on these films. I wanted to do something operatic. I really wanted it to be emotional. And I get it and I appreciate the fact that he wanted to do that. But he just shoved so much emotion into both of the movies he made that you get to part five and it's just exhausting. And they never really each Star Trek film nobody intended to make another one so by the time that they had the story arc that had been told it it needs to be finished we've got all the leftovers now and all and the leftovers being so much unresolved from Star Trek 3 Kirk's son's dead they're they're wanted fugitives they've been hiding out on Vulcan for three months Sarek could maybe be pregnant which they ended up just throwing away that she was gonna have Spock's baby and that sounds kind of cool, and that's why they left her character on Vulcan with Spock's mother, and... Okay, again, we started the movie, and we've got all this shit to deal with, and now, just like Nash said, a, a big black donkey dick dildo has some sort of phaser that can destroy... I don't understand
2: what happens at all, and they don't understand well, And it's unresolved, because... All they really do is take whales from the past, bring them to a whaleless future, and the whales start communicating with the floating monolith uh, in space. And then it's just fucking over. We never find out what the monolith wanted. We never find out why it was attacking Earth. It's just all of a sudden, all right, got some homies around here. I'm out. And then it just flies the fuck off. So we never really get resolution on any story. And it just seems more concerned with just telling this kind of 1980s aesthetic goofball story of, what would Kirk be like in a pawn shop? What would they be like eating dinner in an Italian restaurant? He doesn't know how to order, and I'm not trying to shit on the movie, because I do enjoy it for like for some entertainment value, but just if you're going to get pedantic about Star Trek stuff, and like this feels like a holodeck episode. It just feels like we're dicking off. It's like um, Data and uh, Picard off in like, the 1930s on the holodeck where there are no like there are no consequences to their actions where it's just kind of like we're just having an off day and this is what we're doing
1: now this might be hearsay but more or less my opinion on things i I somewhat feel that leonard nimoy got to direct the last movie and not everyone was really comfortable with that or okay with it and it was sort of a situation of like well who do you think you are so they come around to make another movie and they Har they being Harve bennett leonard nimoy approached william shatner to do the film and I think he, he had some, some reasonings. You know, he really was upset, and I said this before, Shatner did not care for the idea of going back in time for the exact same reasons that Alexander Nash and myself brought up. It just kind of sucks as a plot device. They once before did it in the television show, and I will admit that is a fairly cool episode, but there is a whole reason. They don't shoot around the sun and go back in time. There's a vortex or something around the planet it's a whole different fucking story that I don't have to get into. But in this case, it doesn't work for what it works for. And I think Shatner knowing, all right, I got to bend. If we're going to do this back-in-time thing, then we're going to save the whales. Because lo and behold, apparently William Shatner is incredibly passionate about whales in general. And throughout the 70s, 80s, and, and onward to the 90s, and now, and for as long as he lives, he's a big supporter of Greenpeace, very, very into the conservationship of whales in general to the extent that he had a one-man show in the 1970s where a bunch of whale sounds would play while he read the D.H. Lawrence poem, Whales Weep Not. This guy really, really likes whales. So my humble opinion is, if I have to do this shit again, can we make it about the whales? And originally, Leonard Nimoy was toying with the idea of the whole device being maybe like a virus breaks out, uh, an interstellar disease, and the cure to the virus would be a plant or something that was wiped out because, you know, people not inherently committing acts of evil, but not paying attention to the environment, the atmosphere, not taking care of Mother Earth and all that shit. So I think when Shatner came in and put his foot down, it's like, all right, well, I guess it could be interesting stealing some whales from the 20th century. And it's, it's a buddy comedy. It's a road movie, if anything. But I will I, I do appreciate at least we get to see Chekhov because before this point, I just hated him.
2: Before he goes into a coma for most of the movie. I've
1: been jokingly as I watch the films texting Alexander Nash, like, I hope this fucking prick dies. And I have nothing against him at all. He just has no dialogue. He doesn't do anything. I'm not sure exactly what his job does. He's there to say whistles. And it works. This movie, you actually get sad. It's like, we can't lose the Wessels guy. We got to get him back. And I feel there's so much, like, mysticism about this movie. They were gonna do a scene where Sulu is walking through the streets of San Francisco and rescues a little boy who is lost, and it turns out it's like his great-great-great-great-grandfather. That shit, it sounds kind of stupid, me discussing it. It would have helped the movie, at least, to be like, yep, that thats that's our hero. We know that these people are here to save the day no matter what happens. But instead, we get double dumbass and... Spot goes swimming with a whale. They don't understand eating Italian food. It's funny, and and just like you said, I don't want to shit all over the movie because not only does I enjoy it, it. Yeah, I I really enjoyed watching this. It took me forever. I've been bitching about doing this. I've been making fun of it openly on the show, and then I sat down and laughed my ass off. I and but that's weird. I don't. It, this isn't really a comedy series, so you're laughing at Star Trek. And sure, that's great for the performances of these characters. Shatner's great in this. Uh, I think really the the star of this show is probably Leonard Nimoy because we have this ploy at the beginning of the film where Spock is learning on Vulcan um, everything. You know, he he went from the last film to rehash that, a a baby, and now he's completely 50-fucking-year-old Leonard Nimoy, (laughs) and he has to relearn absolutely everything And the right part of his brain. All of his emotion, all of that is gone, and he doesn't understand even the concept of how to answer the question, how do you feel? So this movie is just a big vehicle on a journey till we get our Spock, the Spock that we had in the first movie back who can at least joke. And <laughs> it's it's just a whole ploy so Leonard Nimoy can tell a fucking few jokes, really. That's, that's the
2: whole movie. Well, yeah, I mean, like, they take the character of Spock, and that's the only character that really grows in this film. Like, Kirk doesn't particularly grow. He grew in the last three films because, as I was saying before in all those movies, it's about, like, most of those are about taking Kirk down a peg and showing him he's not always right. And this film, it's not about that at all. Like, Kirk's just Kirk. Like, he's got nothing to learn. Spock is the only person who's got to kind of get his emotions back. But everybody else is just kind of playing a hyperactive version of the, the character that we've always known. The weird subplots, I mean, a good portion of it is because they didn't really have enough story to concentrate on just, say, Kirk, McCoy, and Spock. But everybody's got little bits to do, and that is fun to see them do it. But a lot of their tasks... Just seem like busy work, busy work to kind of pad out the runtime. Like, check off ending up in the hospital so he can have this madcap. Um Almost it's a mad, 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 mad world version of like an escape from the hospital.
1: I'll give credit to that sequence, though, because it does involve using the naval ship, the USS Enterprise. So that was kind of cool nod to the reality of things. And then it allows us to know like, oh, my gosh. So maybe the world actually comes into a peaceful place and all these former ships of war and these nuclear devices used for the idea of terror and destruction one day are used to explore the galaxy peacefully. That, I mean, but that's all theoretical. I, I liked that idea. I have no, after Sulu hangs out with a guy near a helicopter, we don't see him ever again till he apparently steals a helicopter and saves the day. Like, what the fuck happened there? I'll, I'll give Chekhov's a little but your Your reference, I think, is the most apt because it does become this, like, Wacky, almost Benny Hill esque. I mean, I, I like your reference a lot more. I don't know why with Benny Hill that was. Stupid. It's yeah.
2: <laughs> it's pretty much apt either reference you use. It's the kind of kind of going with the same thing of just being overly slapsticky. It's trying to be clever, but it's not particularly clever. You've seen like a chase like this before in lots of other movies, and it's just their version of it. And again, I enjoy the film. I'm not trying to just bag on it and just say this is shit. It's just. It's a popcorn movie, like, for the first time out of, like, I'd say all the Star Trek franchise films, this is the most, like, turn your brain off and just enjoy what's going on.
1: This was the problem that I encountered last week, and I constantly had to keep telling the audience, I don't hate this movie. You know, I'm trying to honestly discuss it and what I feel about it. I I really enjoy watching it. And I could sit down with Star Trek Four and watch it with multiple people and enjoy it. I'd love to show people this movie. But I can't help but just not even being a fan of the series in whole. I've never really experienced it. I've never seen the deep sides of Star Trek nor the emotion or how these characters came to be what we're presented with in the first movie. But from the very first movie to now, getting to know them, falling in love with them, feeling emotion and, and uh, likening myself to other characters... This one just is, is, it's really like a variety hour special. It's like a TV special where everyone came together and they're doing different skits, a Saturday Night Live sort of thing that we're just going through the city, having a hell of a time It's Star Trek featuring the U.S. military and music by Journey. And I don't feel anything. And then suddenly we go back to space and it's like, oh, 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 yeah. So, I mean, that was, I guess, cool. They saved the the day again. And it's so anticlimactic because the end of Star Trek Three our heroes are outlaws, we've got this really mysterious feeling, and we don't know what's certain for their future. But yeah, they fucking saved the entire infinite universe, and sure, everything's okay. Well, not even, they only specifically save Earth. Whatever this entity that is coming forward is only coming to Earth, because whales, the species of whales, is only found on planet Earth. And I feel a lot of the concepts that are used behind that, you kind of have to know something about whales to... I guess, get it, because they sing, like, everybody knows what a whale song is. And what's unique about pods of whales is that they can begin singing a song, and these songs can transfer 3,000 miles or so, maybe even longer than that, and whales on the other side of the planet will begin singing the song with them, and when one stops, they all stop, and they all have some sort of message. We don't know if it's for mating, we don't know if it's communication or, or anything man doesn't know why they sing these songs. So with that little bit of knowledge, suddenly it becomes a little bit more interesting of, well, what if they are something? They could be an alien force or something that was here left on the earth to be watching over. But why don't they explore that in the film a little bit more? Like, you shouldn't have to know this knowledge. And I'll be completely honest with you, I am recanting this theory because I fucking have the Blu-ray and listen to the commentary with Shatner (laughs) and Leonard Nimoy and they discussed all this so i was like oh hip i get it a little bit put it in now. script put
2: this shit in the script that's what you're missing
1: all it would have taken is uhura turning when she realized oh i uh, these are whale sounds or uh, it was spock that realizes it's whale sounds but it's uhura that gets the high-pitched frequency to play normally well captain the computer says yada 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 fucking two seconds! It would have taken little to no time to include all of this information. I, mean, I Yeah, don't know. it could be just throwaway dialogue. And something that Spock could have even learned when he mind melds because that's a hysterical scene. Something that you couldn't even fathomably write in a movie anymore. They're supposedly at this I don't think it's Monterey, but they shot some of this at the Monterey Zoo. They're at this zoo, and Spock dives into the tank to mind meld with... Is it a sperm whale or a blue whale? It doesn't fucking matter. It's a giant whale,
2: a huge... I think they're humpback whales.
1: Yeah, like it's a two-ton humpback whale, and there's no armed security or people that are dragging him out and beating him, while all dressed ridiculously. Another charm I do have with this movie, and I will give some, some fun toward... Is it takes place in the '80s and '80s San Francisco, and obviously the scene was very, very different then from now. And all of them are still in the crazy party clothes that they're wearing in Part Three. And Spock has these ceremonial robes, and they're just walking through San Francisco like there's no business. But it's during the punk boom and the new wave boom, and they even encounter a punk rocker. That's something that I'll find char- I, I, that I'll find something I find charming about the movie in general that they were able to play with the time. Like, if they're gonna go back to the 80s, it wasn't some punky Brewster style made-for-TV 80s. It, it did fit. It did look like it. It did feel right. I can give credit. Again, like, Nimoy does a good job. It's just... The two Star Trek movies he directed, I wish he hadn't. Like, the first movie seems like something that would be much more logical <laughs> for him to have made because it's, it's much more deep and phil- philosophical notions and it's much more emotional. And this is... It's, it's a fucking buddy comedy.
2: I guess I wasn't completely truthful, though, just because I was sitting here thinking about it. I guess Kirk does have a character arc, but not much of one. Because if you think about, it, like, Star Trek three, the ending, super fucking dark. Kirk's son dies, uh, he throws a Klingon, well, he tries to save him, but yes, okay, the, the Klingon gets thrown into a volcano, whatever you want to call it, and dies, and... The Enterprise is gone, and it's kind of a a dark ending, but there's hope. And this one, we pick up from that dark ending, and then we get into, like, fucking your show of shows for an hour and ten minutes. And we go back to the future, and it's like, well, Kirk, you fucked over the Federation, did a bunch of shit without authorization, broke a bunch of laws, so uh, we're demoting you back to captain from Admiral. And now you're just going to be on the enterprise. It's going to be like some slapping good times again. So I guess that's his character arc is he gets everything back that he ever wanted, which was just his ship and he didn't want to be Admiral. So I guess that's his arc. But other than that, no one else particularly grows, but do they ever grow in these movies? I don't know. It just seems like they have more to do. Like, cause Chekhov didn't even like learn anything. From being in a coma and having a brain bleed and all this, it's not like, well, life is precious. McCoy just, like, zaps him with a, the the laser, like, cell phone, and it's just like, no, I'm fine now, let's get out of here, and then it's just, but you are at the brink of death! I think
1: the little bit of emotion in the scene is, I, I mean, and I'm just going out on a limb here, because when, when that scene happens, McCoy and company are faking being 20th century doctors, and they break into the hospital, and they, they break in on these doctors that are going to drill a hole in his head to relieve the pressure because that's 20th century medicine. It's something they would still do now. In fact, weird uh, side story here, that's how the lead singer of Reagan Youth, Dave insurgent died. He had gotten jumped and had a massive amount of head trauma. Doctors performed a lobotomy to relieve the tension, and if you know anything about lobotomies, shortly after that, the man's life spiraled out of control where he succumbed to substance abuse and obviously getting a fucking lobotomy and died and that was in the early 1990s Reagan Youth if you don't know who they are it's a great punk band but if you are a fan of 90s comedies and you've seen Airhead the Lone Ranger song Degenerated it's a Reagan Youth song they originally wrote it And personally if their
2: Airheads just, it's Poral Hank Oral. Sorry,
1: the Lone Rangers. There's more than one well, of them. Well, no,
2: and Airheads, so there's both. There are Airheads and the Lone
1: Rangers. I, I'm fucking up all over the
2: place here. You fucked the whole plural up. It's it's so quintessential to
1: understanding plot or something. And especially for the band's name, the Lone Rangers.
0: The Lone Rangers? That's original. How can you pluralize the Lone Rangers? What's wrong with that? Well, there's three of you. You're not exactly lone. Shouldn't you be the three rangers?
1: The apron? No idea what you're saying. Deeply off subject here, but a little bit of history on head traumas. And you get, I and I, I'm. this is just fucking semantics and going on a limb here, but McCoy stops everything and he's got his whole device, and no, we've got to repair it this way, and this is how you do it. Don't kill a man. And I guess what you're being shown here is the little bit of power behind these actors always staying with who they are, and I think that's, again, something that is with credit to Leonard Nimoy is that he put, even though these little side quests are completely subjective and none of them really matter to the overall part of what's happening to the story or the arc if any of these characters have it I guess what I'm trying to say is we get a reminder of who they are and what they stand for that like no matter what McCoy is going to go out of his way to save somebody whether it's a friend or foe and we see that again in Star Trek 6 that he still no matter what is willing to do that we see that Chekhov has the most admiration and devout uh, fearless love of his crew and that he's going to stop at nothing to get the job done Sa- same with everybody else it's just kind of reestablishing, yes our crew is getting older, they've been through hell, but they are devoted to the mission at hand. And again, I'm really, really reaching with what I'm saying on it, but it's just, what else do you have? Like, there's If you don't overextend with Star Trek Four and just try and dig in with sort of reasoning or the backstory or, or even trying to backwrite yourself, all you have is... Some weird thing came into the Earth's environment, starts to destroy it because it couldn't find some whales, so now we got to go get some whales, and that's what they do. And Scotty has his own little trek, and mostly with McCoy, where they go... Scotty invents a new element somehow. Uh, What is it, plastic, aluminum, or or (laughs) transparent? Whatever, I don't know, just he trades it to this guy who is a plexiglass manufacturer to get enough plexiglass for them to build this whale tank where they're gonna have to carry 400 tons of material because you've got the two whales. On a bird of prey no
2: less. I don't think birds of prey are that
1: big. When they do the size at the end of the movie they do this valiant Greenpeace style fight against a whaling ship to get the two whales who have been released off the coast of Alaska and it, it doesn't even look big enough in that sequence. The model they used is so quaint and so small compared to the even depth of the Enterprise. And this is something we were talking about at the beginning of the show, but this really bothers me with this movie. So if a Klingon bird of prey can make it all the way to warp 10, go around the sun, and go back in time, why the fuck have the Klingons just not done that and destroyed everything beforehand? If this plot device is so easily used here, why are any of the enemies of the
2: Federation not doing it? If we had done it... Dumb, Hank. I think that's what we're alluding to. Is this, uh, They don't understand. You can fly around the sun, hang a Louie, and fucking you're in time.
1: The only people that are sophisticated enough to do this are our heroes. You've got to have Sulu, you've got to have Scotty, and I get that. I mean, it makes sense, but at the same time, it doesn't make sense. I feel if we'd have used some... Even a plot device of them getting the Excelsior or something else or going back to Earth and getting in trouble before the movie and they're given a ship to save the day, sure, if it was one of our ships, it would make sense. But it's just... using, And I have said this earlier, we're using everything that's left over from these runoff plots from the last movie because it's like, oh yeah, fuck, we stole a Klingon bird of prey, the Enterprise, we blew that up, we don't have that anymore. And the end of this film... Doesn't make sense to me on that subject matter because they just... Why the fuck would they rebuild the Enterprise in the last movie they were decommissioning it because it's too old? And who the fuck (laughs) built it? They've only been gone three months. So the three months that they were gone, they say at the beginning of the movie when the Klingons are arguing at the big space UN meeting, Kirk has been found guilty or Kirk is being charged with like seven or eight different things. And at the end of the movie, it's like, well... Everybody chipped together while the earth was being destroyed and we built your ship again. When the fuck did they do that? And why? Uh, the semantics with Star Trek IV are unbelievably fucking goofy, because I you I'm not asking this on like a weird fanboy level, but it is parts of the movie that now you gotta kinda question, because Kirk says at the beginning of the film they've been in their Vulcan exile for three months. So in three months
2: of them being wanted, when they're fugitives, mind you. So for fugitives, we're going to build this ship because maybe here in a couple of months, they're going to do something really nice for the Earth.
1: <laughs> His son died, so we're going to build it for him anyhow. Like nobody would. Uh,
2: uh, That's another problem though that you bring that up. Like the the what's really guilty in this movie for me is Shatner does not have a fucking moment, and all the other Star Trek movies for the most part, he has that fucking moment where he gets super, super heavy and dramatic. In Star Trek 5, he starts talking about his pain. In Star Trek 6, he's talking about letting the Klingons die and just generally giving that performance of let them die. Because you can feel his his fucking emotion. And that's in Star Trek 2, that's in Star Trek 3. In this one, he's just... He's kind of like Stan Laurel. No, Spock would be Stan Laurel. I guess he'd be um, Oliver Hardy. There
1: is one scene. I don't think it's as comparable to the others, and and like the part five, when we'll talk about. Because I don't want to say the quote now because it's such a great one. There's a really great. Ah, there's a really great Kirk quote in five about pain. His performance when David dies in Part 3 and he stumbles back and falls onto the chair and and, and is weeping. Because he doesn't yell, you Klingon bastards at first. He mutters it while crying. He's so shocked. Powerhouse performances. He gets mad in this one. He is frustrated and he gets upset with Spock and it's toward the end of the film, after they find out that the whales have been taken and that they don't have time, they've got to do everything quickly, I don't remember the exact dialogue, but Spock says something about the chances and the futility behind the chances, and Jim's- uh, there's actually a weird amount of, uh, I guess you could say vulgarity, adult language in this film. Jim snaps him in and says, you're half-human, goddammit, why don't you think about that side? And he- For the first time, I think, we see him mad at his best friend. His best friend who is only living because of his son, and his son's death really is responsible for him following his father's footsteps. Kirk cheated with the Kobayashi Maru, and David cheated creating Genesis, and eventually all of this led to David's death. Also with the same bravery that his father had, he fought for Savik's life and triumphantly saved her and Spock, the one for the many, a lesson that we learn over and over again it's pointed out in this movie to Spock your friends considered you the one more important than their own careers and their lives you have to learn emotion and that being a, a, a follow-through thing through the entire movie Jim really gets upset with him in the scene and I think that's what triggers Spock to realize well my, my mom's right I'm half human I have to think that way I do need emotion even though I think McCoy's a prick he might be onto something, and then our heroes kind of return at that point to who who they the are. Triumvirate the that it's just not really, major. I mean, I really I agree with you that it's nowhere near the power we usually get and what we we should have gotten, and even we could have used this entire. Well, it's so movie.
2: much about Spock and his journey, and I understand that that they've been really like setting this up for three movies now, or like you know I had two, three, and then this one of like this whole kind of thing that's going to go through spock growing as a a character and as a being but we in service of that we kind of forget about kirk's story in this one we forget about mccoy because like in star trek 3 mccoy had that great subplot of having spock in his brain like not understanding what he's doing acting out like going to that bar and looking like basically talking to a pirate.
1: Really one of the best parts of the movies. I mean, I, I love the space pirate scene. That itself is just acting chops straight out of the ass from from DeForest Kelly. I think that's one of the most triumphant pieces in the movie.
2: And they really gave him something to do. And in this one, he feels like no more important than any other character on the ship. Because like, as Uhura and Off are running their little errands, I mean, he's doing his little thing, but he just kind of gets forgotten about. At the beginning of the film... He
1: has a discussion with Spock, and they're just humorous back-and-forth antics. Like, we establish, okay, he's back. Maybe that was a whole vibe that Leonard Nimoy wanted to go with, that we have seen him so stressed, we've seen him so different, and the end of Star Trek Three, he's really willing to give his life. The Grand Vulcan Chancellor, or whatever, says, this is very dangerous, it could kill you and Spock, and he, without skipping a beat, chooses the danger for the one, for the the gang, pretty much, and we know
2: he's him, I guess, now, and I, the biggest... Well, I mean, what's so great about that, though, is, like, in 3, everybody had, like, Kirk had his story of wanting to get his friend back, sacrificing his son. He has a lot going on for him. Spock, he's growing up, he's becoming um, a a fresh new being. Is he going to be himself? What's going to be of this new character? Bones is, he's got Spock's, uh, his... Contra. whatever you'd call it, his Cossack inside of him. <laughs> yeah, he's got that Spock so fucking deep inside of him. And it gives him something to play off of and gives him, like, something to do. And it really, like, he becomes kind of the hero at the end of the, the entire movie of, like, sacrificing himself to get Spot back. So when you get to this film, it's like we just throw all of that away and it just becomes Galaxy Quest. And I like Galaxy Quest, too. I think mean, that fucking hilarious, but it's also a parody of Star Trek. <laughs> That's the problem. It should like this is should be a little bit more. Like I don't know. I just I want a little bit more meat to it than it actually has. We spend way too much time on nothing subplots that don't really add anything, nor add to the emotional context or a concept. And we spend so much time of just goofballing around San Francisco, and it's just like okay, it's enjoyable enough, but. I'm just not getting that deep meaningfulness that I need in a Star Trek film. Well, that's what
1: I mean with the scene I was bringing up, that Spock and McCoy are discussing death, and Spock says to him, well, I really can't talk to you about it because it's not happened to you. And we get to see our old doctor back because he's annoyed by the situation, and he makes a joke about nobody being perfect, which to great dismay, Spock just sort of looks at him, and that's it. We don't, we see him with Scotty and he helps out throughout the story. And that one's weird itself because that's the trifecta. We follow through with what I've been calling the trinity of these characters Spock, McCoy, and Kirk. Where is even their friendship going from this point? They have pretty much laughed at God, they, they've seen their best friend die defeated. A fascistic evil that would have done nothing but attempted to take over the known galaxy in unrest and it caused absolute horror. Then they move forward and face a, without better terms, a terrorist that for their own gain is going to attempt to destroy and disrupt everything that David's worked on, thus finding out that David's work itself is unstable because he cheated. We,
2: like Kirk... He learned a lesson.
1: And everything is lessons learned from the extension of Kirk because everything is kind of his problem. If he hadn't treated Khan the way that he treated him, if he had had some sort of diplomatic responsibility, he would have checked in. He would have made sure the people that he exiled on this place were okay and would have found out, oh, wow, it's become an awful desert planet, blah, blah, blah. He neglected his responsibilities. It's all cause and effect because of Kirk. The first movie, I can't really blame so much on him. You can't do much with... Well, uh, yeah, you got the Vulcan that gets killed at the beginning of the movie, and then of course uh, the Seventh Heaven molester
2: becomes the first one. It was pretty much getting back to business and reuniting these characters a little bit, and that's mostly their story. And we get a little bit deeper emotional as we go on. And like you were saying, like the the Trinity, we get right back to that in part five, which we'll be talking about later. But I mean, we get back to that friendship of these three. And we just kind of lose a lot of that, and it becomes so much more about Spock and Kirk, and like I guess it's trying to heal their relationship, but it just doesn't seem like we focus on on that enough. We're focused so much more on uh just business and getting from point A to point B. I've got to be here at this time to do this, and it's just that's just not as interesting to me as the more deeply emotional heartfelt things that are possible in a star trek property Harve bennett and leonard
1: nimoy apparently didn't want like a heavy a traditional heavy to be in this movie because according to leonard nimoy the last two films were so emotional that we experienced so much spock dies the enterprise dies kirk's son dies they become these terrific outlaws and the question is unknown what their future is going to be so they wanted to do something a lot more light and friendly but space whales Why would you choose to do that? I mean, I understand doing that as a whole thing, and the end of the story could have ended with this very light and friendly manner. But you leave with such anticipation, and it returned us, the end of part three, I think, to a historic Star Trek ending. The adventure will continue, but the the future is unknown. It is mysterious. It is... Alluring again our heroes have really become not bad guys but their quest for justice and what they believe to be 100% right is against what we know to be the truth of the Federation and on whose side are we going to be on and it's just it's so easily dismantled at the beginning of the movie and then at the end we get back to that like oh yeah they're bad guys just for Kirk to pretty much be rewarded, and you were discussing that scene, and I, I don't even think it's really tongue-in-cheek that the Federation president's like, we're gonna demote you, which you wanted anyhow, and we rebuilt your ship for you. And it plays off way too happily to ever. It's just too much of a happy ending, and it's not that Star Trek can't have things like that, but if we're not building the emotion, not just of the characters, but of ourselves, if we're not left questioning things at the end of this, then what are we gaining? because Star Wars is exactly what it says in title. It's a Star War. It's these vicious battles and a battle of morality and wrong and right, and all of these deeply philosophical meanings impacted on top of that. But Star Trek is the Trek of the stars. It's it's a more scientific- It's about discovery. It's
2: about like- Adventure. So it's in the fucking prompt at the beginning of the show.
1: Space, a final frontier.
2: These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission. That is what it's about. It's not about, like, evil and and good conquers all. It's about choices that have to be made and possible things that can happen in science and interesting things. I mean, you can't blame Star Trek for completely because, I mean, if you go back to the original series, this is more like a, a Trouble with Tribbles type episode. I mean, it's probably a little less lighthearted than that, but, I mean, it's, it's something along those lines where it's kind of like the, the jokey... <laughs> and Kurt kind of gives a smirk at the end of the episode. There are deeper and darker episodes of the original series. I guess that's what they were going for with this one, though, is just, like, let's keep it away from the doom and gloom that's been going on for so much, and let's kind of take it back and just do one of, like, one of those... Funny Tribble episodes. People like those, too. Yeah, to each his own, I guess. Fuck, the, even the Gorn episode. I mean, as goofy as that alligator monster is, like, it's fucking serious. It's about, like, it's... Actually, it's the uh, whole plot of fucking Starship Troopers, but whatever, we'll get too much into that. But, I mean, it's a serious concept about war and engagement and colonialism
1: starship troopers might have been the basis for that for all we know that book was written in the 50s wasn't it
2: it's literally about that they were the ones coming into the gorn's area unannounced and unwanted and they were just fighting back like somewhat like i mean starship troopers is the same thing like we were trying to colonize a planet of bugs that we were creating a genocide of and the bugs were just fighting back and we're the actual fascists. You
1: know, Robert Heinlein wrote Starship Troopers in 1959 so it's very viable that it, it could have been a, a, a basis for that but even in the original series I I, I touched upon this a little while ago there's a, a time travel episode, and I can't remember the name, but Dr. McCoy ends up being injected with an experimental drug, and it's the wrong thing, and it makes him absolutely freak out. <laughs> he gets way too fucking high and freaks out, and he beams down to this planet that the Enterprise has been hovering over top of. And I don't know the specifications and the semantics behind it all, but he gets stuck in some sort of time vortex, and when everybody beams down, he gets they get stuck with him, and they're on a form of Earth from the future, or something like that. I'm going to be completely honest with you. I read the episode synopsis. I haven't seen the episode. And so with that, it's a plot device that was formerly used before, but the way it was handled was a, a much more TV, I guess you could say, way. They had, a very e- they had an easy solution to this. At some point in time, we know we have to go back, or, or forward. We have to go to the 23rd century. We came from that, so they've got to take these whales back. There's no reference whatsoever to the fact that this bird of prey got its ass kicked. I mean, at the very beginning of the movie, they rename it the HMS Bounty. They've been working on it for three months. We know that Scotty's taken a great deal of time making this ship ready to go. We even know that they've made new technology by doing so, that now this bird of prey can cloak at any time. It can even cloak when it fires. Thing that's used as a plot in another movie coming into the future but it went fucking back in time it had to go around the sun it wasn't damaged it wasn't destroyed and yes I know that's a part Twice. of the movie
2: it went back and forwards
1: well and this is a part of the movie that's the whole subplot with Chekhov they have to make sure that they can get the same stuff that can be turned into lithium crystals and broken down and yurda dirda burba derba, and all that technical stuff I get it. They tried to pay attention to it, but none of it works for me because it's just this weird jumble of buddy comedy. It's it's really like a, an extravagant display of a weird 80s best of TV episode. We've got the gang and the U.S. Navy's going to be here and everyone's going to have a good time. And then you get back to them anticlimactically getting to warp 11, which is unheard of, and they get back. They crash land on Earth, they're in the San Francisco Bay, the ship is sinking, they release the whales, the big space dildo hears the call, and everything's back to normal? Uh So no one was in danger the entire time, and I really feel that Harv Bennett and Leonard Nimoy were wrong. Their whole antithesis was this, is we're going to make a much more friendly movie. We're going to make something that is much more
2: lighthearted for the fans. It and did we- work because this one made a shit ton of money and like reinvigorated the entire series, so it did really well. They didn't want a heavy,
1: and I think we still needed a villain, and this is going to be some ridiculous fan service back writing here. But I said on the last episode that I love all the stories that we get in Star Trek Three, but wouldn't it be great if they were individualized a little bit on their own? Now, imagine this. All the same stuff happens in Star Trek Three, but it's not Krug. They have this bird of prey, they're going back. Krug has intercepted with his crew all the shit that happened on the Genesis planet and is following the crew of the Enterprise and a bird of prey, and their own bird of prey, and they follow with them and realize, well, we're back in time and we can completely destroy any chance of the Federation happening and turn earth into a klingon empire and then you have this whole idea of a heavy setup while they're trying to save the whales and they're fighting the fucking klingons and then it's another back to the future movie with christopher lloyd (laughs) one hand washes the other it all works out in my
2: mind gonna go back in time it really did need a huey lewis song
1: outside of the punk song does it have anything else which is really one of the best 80s
2: score it's just score
1: I'll give credit to that being one of the best 80s movies punk songs that you wish was a real band, but it is not. The punk we see performing that role, he was a, a liaison, pretty much, for Leonard Nimoy between what now is, I, I, I think, Pixar? It was part of George Lucas's uh, Lights Team. At ILM? Yeah, it was It was a, a section of ILM at the time, and this dude was the liaison back and forth, and he wrote the song, performed it, came up with it, and went down to L.A. and bought all the stuff to be the hardcore punk rocker. <laughs> That's kind of a touch itself from reality. Leonard Nimoy had encountered this in New York. He came across the punk with a boom box and just kind of thought in his words, who is this dumbass that thinks he can invade people's space this way
2: and wanted so to add it. Old man sits there and says, man, I really wish I was Spock. I would give him the Vulcan nerve pinch right now. Playing that fucking radio.
1: Uh, that I mean, those are like fun kind of things with the movie, and I hate having to get down to that point of like,
2: yep, it's fun. <laughs> that's about
1: it. Like, it's kind of fun. But it like, this is the Star Trek movie that I think most people remember when we began the series. I was bitching about it. Yeah, there's one about them, their whales. And it's not bad. There's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. But even when you finish the movie, it's not that there's a stale taste left in your mouth. It's just like, well, who the fuck cares what happens next? I mean, I guess they can do anything, huh?
2: And that, Well, I like a little meat with my potatoes, and this movie is mostly just potatoes. That's generally my problem with it. I, I just think it gave too much power to what these
1: guys can and can't do. If, if you can just go back in time and save the day, then why at the beginning of the movie did you not go back to right before Wrath of Khan started and stop all of these events? Why, why would you have to do this? You could just... Oh, Kirk, you, you could have brought your son back to life, dickhead. <laughs> I mean, why not go back to right before part two, explain to everyone we need to take another ship, go back to Earth and get some whales, and then take your scientist son, who's now not dead, and his mother, who would be very helpful, and all of Genesis back. Fuck, they could have just used Genesis to bring the whales back. This movie shouldn't have happened. That's the that's the actual script. This is what they should have done. They go
2: back Why to before part two. Do they when they go back in time? They come back at the exact same time. Not like right when the thing's getting there. Now they let everybody who's been experiencing all the shitty times that the uh, the monolith has been there. Yeah, we're gonna come back the exact moment before it destroys the earth that's the part it's just like is that how time travel works you can only go back to points in time like to the same time period in 1987 but when you go back you gotta go back to the exact time you left or whatever it doesn't make any fucking sense
1: yeah because you think there would have been some sort of anxiety riding the entire time that we only have a certain amount of time to do this before
2: the son of a bitch destroys the entire planet we keep going back to the future to get updates on what's happening in the future while they're doing and it's like can't they just come back earlier? For
1: all our horror fans out there, Michael Berryman alert. Now we have something for everybody. Michael Berryman's in this movie for a good portion of it, and he survives. He's a weird little monster guy. Well, not little. There's nothing small about that guy. He's like 11 feet tall. But, yeah, Michael Berryman appears throughout all these scenes where we're being refreshed with what's happening. So what is the time restraint here? There has to be something. I mean, but that would have been a good device of having anxiety, but now I'm kind of annoyed that I've come up with this thought because if they'd have just if they could fucking go back in time, if you went back before the events of part 2 happened, stopped Chekhov from picking up that prick con, then they could have just gone to Genesis. He could have had a nice moment with David, told him he's saving his life. Use Genesis to create the humpback whales and then destroy the program after the whales hear it, thus saving the world and saving David from his untimely death. That would have been a great movie. I don't know. It's time
2: cop rules or something. I don't know. You can't inhibit the same space. Who the fuck knows? I mean, they don't explain it. I guess we're supposed to just let it pass a, like to the side and just go, eh, okay, whatever.
1: Time travel. Eh.
2: Also, don't think we could have
1: filmed that. It's 1986, and Merritt Butrich may have been dead at this point. He might have died the next year or the, the year after that. He was in
2: Fright Night 2, which was 87 or 88.
1: I can't remember. I think he died in 1989, now that I say
2: it. so Because he appears... Because uh, he was in Death Spa and Fright Night 2. I think like those were pretty late.
1: I believe his final appearances in Star Trek are in five and six as a in, a in a photograph that Kirk keeps of him because he had passed away by that time period, which is a very honorable way to bring that actor back. I know you're not a huge fan of David, but I think
2: the character could have been It's used. the character, man.
1: Oh, that's my problem, I guess, because I feel that what we're shown in part two had so many options and so much that could have gone forward with it. And in part three, it's just kind of thrown away and they didn't take a lot of time to turn it into something that could have been favorable for Kirk. I mean, we're supposed to feel so much emotion when David dies that he's not gotten to even know his son as a man, yet alone as his son, but we don't even get to know him. He's just kind of a hotshot character and it's, it's a waste.
2: I think he's both too old and too young for that role. So he's in this weird afro (laughs) 1980s afro time period and he's just like at 20 probably three or whatever he's probably too old to make the character endearing and probably too young to pull the character off in a more um i don't know more like kind of cynical way of just giving as opposed to making him kind of this whiny 20 year old who just is not like sure of himself at all. I know that's part of the character trait, but at the same time, it would play better if it was just maybe somebody who's a little bit more grizzled. I don't know. I think that's really turns out to be the
1: problem in part three is that we turn him into this triumphant hero and we're attempting to make him too Kirk-like. And there needs to be a drastic difference. He's grown up with animosity and indifference from Kirk his entire life. So he wouldn't make the same decisions, despite their genes being the same way. He is a scientist. He's a doctor. He would operate and do things in a different manner. And I think turning the character directly into like, oh, he's Kirk's son. So of course he's going to save the day and die doing so. We didn't do justice to it. I think really, especially Merritt as an actor. I think he's a terrific actor and added something additional to the cast by being young. But I think they really copped with stereotypes of young people at the time period, too, without thinking of the future. And none of these movies were supposed to have a future. They were making them, and then they were ending them. So by bringing him back, I guess you really raise the question, and this is the same thing with Savick. What are we going to do with these characters? If you have the core people, you know you don't have to pay too many other people and come up with what's going to happen here. And, like, Savick, I I think it's a great character. Initially, I thought... The recasting kind of sucked. When I had gotten into Part Three for the first time, I missed Kirstie Alley, and I brought up on the last episode that I think Robin Curtis is Savic. I think she does a much better job. I would have. Loved- definitely
2: more emotional, and Kirstie Alley is a little bit more like stoic. I think they were trying to go for that in um, Star Trek Two of like Vulcan character being stoic and all that. But I think she, uh, the other actress, brought uh, more heart to the role. I don't know, I mean, with it being a Vulcan, do you want that or not? But I think she does pull it off, especially with the whole David situation and all that.
1: I think her emotion, what we're, what we're perceiving in Part 3 is the fact that she has been working with David for a, a while now, that they've been out, I can't remember the name of the ship they're on, but they've been out on this ship working on the Genesis planet for a long period of time, and she, before that, had been established with Captain Kirk. And having worked with them, I think maybe it's almost it's something that I think like uh, we see in, the, th- in the, the third movie that every seven years Vulcans go through kind of a, a, a pu- puberty sort of thing this awful painful horniness that has to be solved through some sort of weird ritualistic foreplay that maybe being on the Enterprise and dealing with Kirk actually brings out the emotion possibly of Vulcans because after a time period throughout the show and the movies we get this kind of joking mixture of, of logic and human emotion with Spock. And I think they tried to rush that with Savick, that we go from how serious things were with Kirstie Alley, and then we establish that she's been working with David on this other ship and is reflecting human emotions. And that's something that can bring us into Star Trek Four because Kirk tells the crew, and this is, I guess, one of my favorite parts of the movie, before they get to San Francisco, we're going back to a very paranoid culture these people are, are hard to deal with. They're very eclectic. This time period is is just awful. And even Spock says, Oh, we must be in the twentieth century because I recognize all the smog. Look at all this pollution. And we look back on our time period and you look at these movies and when they came out and them trying to give reasoning to who the characters are and them getting together with each other or why they're having certain emotion. I do think a lot of it comes to that specification i guess you could say like it's fucking the early 70s and it's not kirstie alley what else can we do if that makes sense yeah i mean there's not a lot more to do with the character i would have liked to have seen her gone on though because robin curtis makes it her own and savik becomes somebody that you're rooting for by the end of part three david's gone so she's telling the story and you even get that at the beginning of this film that She's being dismissed and told that she has to stay on Vulcan and turns to Admiral Kirk and says, I-, I never got to tell you about your son, but he died like a fucking boss. He really put forth the old college try and I hope that makes you feel better at the end of the day. <laughs> 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 not exactly verbatim. That's not what she says. And I don't think we ever again hear from Captain Savick. I believe Kirstie Alley was approached to reprise the character on an episode of Generations and wanted like five times what the show's budget was and they just wrote it off. Robin Curtis- Later. I think her well, the actress didn't really go on to do a lot more, but she does appear later on as a completely different character in Generations. And it's like, you establish so much time with who these people are. We've been following and rooting for them since part two. I feel it's kind of a cheap shot going into part five that there's no more notion that we don't even really get to go back and hear about like Vulcan. That was something really beautiful about part two in the beginning of this one is we have this like monastic through
2: line going. And when you get to star Trek five at the end of star Trek four, we sever that through line and we've kind of reset the characters back to originally who they were. So that doesn't really give us anywhere to go with any of that anymore. So we kind of have to start everything over, which is a bit of a mistake, I think. But I mean, it's, Not one that they didn't somewhat correct in part six, Uh, but yeah, it's just the through line, the thread that was kind of tying this whole series together. has just kind of been severed and we're just at the end of Star Trek four. Where are we going from this? And the answer is Star Trek five, which is completely different.
1: Well, from three onward, the rapidity of the series being renewed became much more intensive, I guess, because you had, what, 1969 to 1979, and then 1983, then we push right into 84, 86, going into the 90s, the movies were refreshed. I think at this point in time, interest had regained with Star Trek, people's familiarity with these faces and names was really becoming popular again, and people were falling in love, point blank, with Star Trek, and it was... A budget time they started getting money let's push these out let's do this you guys are getting old let's keep pushing it and even what is it 1991 1992 the final star trek film uh
2: yeah it was 91 it came at the same year as terminator 2
1: i believe d Forrest kelly died in 1999 So if that's a timeline for the age of some of these people, and he was in his 70s when he passed away, they were pushing this, let's keep doing this, let's milk this, and I guess I can understand why people don't like the progression of the series from this point onward, but I strongly disagree with the masses. Part 4 is the weakest, 5 isn't the strongest, but I might enjoy it more than Wrath of Khan, and that's a fucking bold statement.
2: Well, so, part 5, and we'll get more intently into it, like, in the future, but... On the yeah, next I think episode. it's so much more maligned over a lack of budget, a script that wasn't 100% polished and done, but as a whole, it's such a Star Trek film, and the, the subjects it discusses is so much more interesting than a lot of the things that have been going on. Well, You know what? I think that... That might really actually
1: be the problem, what you just said, why audiences don't like this as much, because it is really a Star Trek film that returns us to the adventures of our heroes. goes back to part one, for fuck's sake. So I think it goes beyond. Shit. I think it goes to the original series, and it gives us that adventurous... Because every, every episode, something happened. It wasn't a, a multi-year arc, because when we begin Star Trek The Motion Picture, I, we've established and talked about this before, we don't know how long of a time period it is until Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan happens, and then Part 2 happens immediately after. Three months after that is Part 4. Following that, it seems like the immediate adventure. What we see on the series is a five-year voyage, and we don't know if all of these are linear or just adventures that have happened on the five-year voyage, but the point is, it's adventurous. It's going deep into space and exploring the unknown, and there might be a bad guy, or it might be a situation that they have to think their way through. And we go into Part 5, and it takes us into a part of the series, I don't think and I, this is my opinion, at that time period, Star Trek fans were used to. The movie series was completely different, but Generations was not the same, and it, it isn't. It's a much more, and I don't mean this, and like an unsoph- I don't mean this as like Star Trek, the original series is unsophisticated, but The Next Generation was a bit more humbled. The characters were vastly different. Captain Picard handled
2: situations much more
1: differently than Kirk did.
2: With the Next Generation is so much more about Starfleet. And the rules of Starfleet and following the rules and the rules of engagement. And it becomes much more about this idea of exploring and discovering new things in space. And it's very scientific based. And it's not about being brash. It's not being like Kirk is like Kirk is, uh, as you brought up before, he's like a fucking cowboy type character. He's, like, always pushing and pushing, and Picard pushes, but he pushes in a different way. He pushes with uh, his intelligence and his sophistication, and he's not pushing so much with, you know, that braggadoche um, personality that Kirk has of basically, like, being a fucking ego-driven dick like
1: Kirk. I I hate to bring up people's, uh, not ethnicities, but I guess uh, races or nations into play, but... Kirk is very much an American. He reacts like an American. He acts like an American. And obviously Captain Picard is not. And there is a bit more of a humble nature. Like, I mean, if you're looking at a chess game, Kirk is the guy that's going to attack the queen first as to where Picard's the guy that will make the game last nine hours, moving palms around the board to finally get what's going to happen. But both of those things work eloquently. But at the time period, 1986, I think that's what the audience was, was kind of waiting for. And then this, family-friendly movie comes out. Everybody falls behind it. We get to see our heroes in our time period. And I can imagine, I mean, I can't put my place there, but I can imagine if I was 17, 18, even into my 40s when this movie came out, having been a fan of the series. Because if you were a teenager who had seen the movies and had gone back and seen the show, which was massively syndicated, and you had the animated series of The Next Generation, you might have felt something much more different. Me going completely boldly into this without those established feelings, I don't care what was happening at the time. I don't care if Generations is how Star Trek was moving forward to. You have these core characters, and you have so much established with who these characters are, I would have much rather run with a more rough and tumble adventure story, and we seem to be really the, the odd men out with our opinion on Star Trek Four going into Five because both of us seem to be the same, which we had been discussing before the show, I found this really interesting, I didn't know Five was disliked as, as much as it is, and I've seen it one time, I'll watch it again before we do that episode, I, I loved it the first time, I really loved what we got into, I loved the themes, the theories, there's problems. I think from Star Trek 3 onward there's problems and that's some of the fun of discussing it but by this is the weakest movie. I have to give that the title. Star Trek 4 is the weakest in the series for me. 5 returns us to the the show and the adventurous nature of the show and the whole point of my ramble is maybe people just weren't ready for that at the time. And maybe that is where we're at now looking at all these different and vastly growing Star Trek series from Picard to Enterprise to you've got the prequel series with Captain Pike So many different adventures for so many different people. There's a Star Trek show for everyone now, so maybe going into the 80s that was starting to be a problem. People wanted so many different things, they just weren't ready to present the adventures that the Enterprise was going on. That was long. I'm sorry. (laughs) So I guess it comes to a point on the Death by DVD Star Trek extravaganzas that we have to say over and over again, don't hate the movie. Don't dislike it even. I, I really enjoy watching this, and it's fun to laugh. It it feels nice sometimes to just sit back and to relax and to laugh. It's, it's having fun with your friends.
2: Having your fun with your Star Trek friends.
1: And it works really well for that level. I was surprised throughout this movie how much I audibly would, would just giggle and kind of got off on what was going on, this weird buddy comedy with all these characters that we have seen go through so much extravagant stress in the last few movies but there's not a lot more that we can say about it. I mean, save the whales. To this day, we don't want this to happen to us in the 23rd century, so don't throw out that weird plastic six-pack ring. No, that doesn't affect whales. That's turtles. Yeah, the ashtray's full. The bottle's empty. Save the turtles, the whales. Don't throw your cigarette butts outside the window. I'm not good at this. Go listen to William Shatner. We'll see you next week. Star Trek 5. That'll
0: do DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.
2: Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced.